Yeah, you know, you looked at James and all the talent and passion he has in his life, his ministry. But the really talented person in that family, a multi-talented family, is definitely Shauna. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And she worked her magic uh, recently, the last couple of days, on two of our rooms. We have have two new rooms in the building. If you haven't checked it out, you need to look. uh, Doug, sometime before you leave today, go down to the main office slash. The main office is not the pastor's office. The main office is Maxine's office. And uh, Shauna has totally renovated that. It looks like the room's twice as large as it was, and it's really uh, more efficiently laid out, and it's really just aesthetically beautiful. And then she did uh, the same kind of a job on the, uh, the crib nursery, which is down the hall to your left on the north side of the Ed Wing. And so check that out today. Thank you, Shauna, for all you did on that. It was awesome. Let's open the Word of God, please, to First Peter chapter 1, and we'll look at verse 10, 11, and 12 this morning. Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Get my doodad to work here. Uh, We're going to look at verses 10, 11, and 12, but let's start with verse 1 and 2 just to remind us uh, to whom Peter wrote this originally. It's, It's gnomic, it's timeless, it's the Word of God written is for Ben and for Alan as much as it was for Publius and, and Gaius, whoever were among this initial community. But look at verse 1. Uh, Peter, he's the human author, uh, the Holy Spirit's the divine author, an apostle, a five-star general over the church, foundational gift given to the first century church, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to, that is writing this letter under inspiration initially, to those who reside as aliens, people forced to live one place while their hearts are someplace else. Aliens, in this case because of persecution, scattered away from their homes where their hearts were throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, rejected by the world, but chosen by God according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of God the Holy Spirit, uh, to obey the gospel, to believe in Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Now, if uh, you lived 2,000 years ago and were living in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, or Bithynia, you might think that would be really meaningful to me and and to you. But really, this is a gnomic uh, document of timeless truth. And uh, the folks that he was writing to uh, initially... And he's in Rome as he writes this, but he's writing to folks who lived in that. I'm not sure. I was trying to draw a circle there, Ben, but I think it's uh, it's not really an oval. I'm not, how would you describe that shape? Uh, what? Yeah, it looks like it's a kidney shape. It kind of looks like the 12th grain at Augusta, doesn't it? And not about that. But they lived in Syria and or far what we would call South East Turkey, and in those. That's where the original readers lived and were happy living there, but they've been spread out through, for us, we'd say Kansas, Nebraska, Arkansas, and Missouri, something like that. So we, he's writing this letter, Steve, to people who are believers in Christ, but have been forced by persecution to leave their physical comfort zone and really uh, be forced to live their faith under fire. And that's the whole context for the whole book. You've got to keep that in mind. Now, let me start here. Uh, when you hear the when you hear the the word or the term VIP, hold in your mind what you think of, okay? And uh, I, I think we all kind of know what that tends to stand for. But when I did a Google search this week, just with the images, I found out that there's all kinds of things that VIP can stand for. Uh, volunteers in police service was one of them, which I thought was very interesting and it sounds good to me. Uh, how about visually impaired preschool services? That's VIPs, VIPs, volunteers in public schools. And then, if you've uh, had the pleasure of being with us on one of the Puebla trips over the years, uh, you'll recognize this. James, remember that sign? Remember VIPs? Uh, here's VIPs. VIPs is kind of like a Mexican Denny's, uh, and this is the downtown version in Puebla. And uh, they really have some pretty good food and pretty decent prices. 
So when I think of VIP or VIPs, I tend to think of that. But you know, you know, but really I think most of us think of the acronym that we use that stands for very important person. A VIP is a very important person. The president, the secretary of state, the uh the pope, these people are VIPs, they're very important persons. Um uh, I guess I've got an inferiority complex. I tend to think VIPs are people who are more important than me. Okay? But uh, that's possible. But um, the good news is this morning in our passage, we're going to learn just based on where we are in God's program. Okay, Trey? Every believer in this room is an SVIP. We're, we're special VIPs. We're very definitely uh, PCs. That is privileged characters, because we're in a position that people in in the days of the prophets longed to see, uh, and we're living in them. And we're we, sometimes we take that for granted. So we're going to talk about the fact that every believer in this room and all over this world are all spiritual VIPs. But let's pray. We'll be teachable to God's word this morning, and uh, let's also pray for those who protect and serve us. And we're thinking about. Uh, Medical doctors and medical students, uh, but particularly firefighters and peace officers in our active military right there. So, uh, Lendl Smith, lead us in, in opening prayer in that direction, would you please? Yeah, um, we're going to have uh, some out-of-this-world truth today. And so to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking, uh, I want to talk about seven little-known facts about the Apollo 11 moon mission. Uh, for those of us who were alive when that happened, very uh, unforgettable uh, morning. It was the middle of the night, if I remember. My dad woke me up and we watched it on that fuzzy image, you know. But there we've got Neil Armstrong, who was actually the first man to walk on the moon. Michael Collins, who was the command module pilot. He orbited the moon. While uh, Neil and the guy on the far right, Buzz Aldrin, both got to walk on the moon. And you know a lot of information about that, but let's look at some little-known facts about that mission. Number seven, each one of the astronauts earned almost 500,000 frequent flyer miles. These aren't uh, loud, funny, or anything like that, but they're just designed to warm up your capacity for abstract thought. Uh, Neil Armstrong's mom got mad at him after he got home because he forgot to bring her some green cheese. Uh, for those of you under 50, they used to say that the moon was made out of green cheese, tongue-in-cheek. I'm not sure anybody really believed that, but that was the basis of that joke. Number five, uh, Aldrin and Armstrong had to add an extra moonwalk uh, the day after the first one because for some reason Buzz had accidentally left the Lem's ignition key in a crater. I made that one up all by myself. Uh, Number four, they had to pay $1,000 when they got back home for failing to return their space capsule with a full tank of rocket fuel. You know, when you rent a car, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. You know, they used to say in seminary, if you have to explain your illustrations, don't use them. And I think that also meant if you have to explain the jokes, don't use them, but... uh, it's spring break, you know. I, I, I let my hair down. Whatever's left of it is, is down. Uh, talking about the seven little-known facts from the moon mission. Number three, just before their final re-entry to Earth, the crew had a huge argument. You didn't hear about this, did you? About which one of them would get to drink the last glass of Tang. Let me explain Tang. Okay. Uh Back in the 60s, it was a very new concept. You could buy, like, powdered stuff and take a spoonful and put it in a glass of water, and you basically had orange juice. It was a chemical reaction. It was not a supernatural thing. But uh, in here, uh, this was actually an ad from Look Magazine, full page, with uh, uh, yeah Florence Henderson, who played uh, Carol Brady and was a singer and an actress and stuff. And uh, she says, almost 50% of Americans' children don't get enough vitamin C. And so at the bottom of that, those aren't her children. Those are two actors pretending to be children. 
That's why I'm glad my family loves the taste of Tang. So, because it was dehydrated orange juice, the astronauts would take it into space with them. That was the whole thing on that one. And I'm not going to do that one again. Uh, the moon landing, quote-unquote, was actually faked. And my grandmother really believed it was faked. And filmed in the same studio where the Star Wars movies were made. Thank Okay. Hold your applause. We're going to get back into the word here. This is the last one, I promise. No more jokes today. Uh, number one, little known fact. When he had spare time during the flight to and from the moon, Buzz Aldrin relieved his high levels of stress by preparing for his appearance on Dancing with the Stars. And yes, Buzz Aldrin, the second man on the moon, 40 years later, as an old guy, was dancing. And I think he got eliminated on the first show. But he actually was on Dancing with the Stars. So he actually did something with his life, rather than, which is important, right? Okay, the book of First Peter, as we noted in verses 1 and 2, are talking about what we should do when our faith is under fire. And Sherry, I mean, Sherry uh, and, and her family have gone through a lot of difficulties the last couple of years especially. So I know you feel like you're in this crucible and you can, can't see your way out. But they've got strong enough faith. They know God is with them in the fiery furnace, as we know from the book of Daniel. But, uh, yeah, what do you do? And, and frankly, you know what? I mean, Anthony, every Christian I know literally is either in a crisis, just coming out of a crisis, or just about going to a crisis. So there's no, uh, we're, we're not bulletproof. None of us are bulletproof. Um, and yet, um, there are a lot of principles in God's word that can help us think about and process the difficulties in our lives. The book looks like this. When you look at all the five chapters, and we've got the Steve Skinner slash Jan Palovic challenge now. Because uh, uh, I'm challenging you if you want me to start teaching better. I know the first thing you're going to say is eliminate the top seven list, uh, which may or may not happen. Uh, although, you know, if the elders say stop, I'll stop. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to deny that. But, um, if you can read through that book, and Steve, how long did it take you to read through it? Run 20 minutes? Well, you're an engineer, right? I can do it in 12. I'm, I'm a theologian, so. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, you know what? You're right. You're right. Because that 12 minutes, I use the Cliff Notes version, so that's why it's so much faster. But yeah, I mean, this is, this book has an interesting structure because he talks about living uh, your faith under fire, and sum- summarizes some basic things about our our faith, what we believe, and how we should behave. And at the end, he emphasizes the specific things of the importance of submission to legitimate authority under God in the Christian life, and we all have to submit to some things and somebodies. Uh, and then suffering is zeroed in uh, at the very end. But right in the middle of, of those two units, we've got the purpose statement, there in uh, chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. And a paraphrase would be something like this of that statement. Uh, this is controls everything he's saying in the book. As spiritual aliens, par epidemois, uh, short-timers on earth with a, a, a heart someplace different and better than earth, we're designed for something much better than this. Christians, put your name in the blank, Sherry Harrington or Susan Duell. And yet, the weird thing about the Duells is... I mean, uh, Brian keeps getting older and, and, you know, Lisa gets older, Lisa gets older, but, uh, Susan and, and Alan just don't get any older. I mean, it's, what are you, what are you guys taking? What are you drinking there? I, I gotta find out, man. It's, it's good. But, uh, Christians should not be controlled by our emotions and feelings. I know all the translations say lust. That's the word epithumia. And we think of sexual lust when we hear the term lust in English. But epithumia just means a strong desire to do something. And it can't even be a good thing. But he's just saying we shouldn't allow ourselves to be controlled by our emotions and our feelings, especially when we're suffering. Uh, but we should consistently live our faith centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you put your biggest challenge against the background of the cross, uh, that will shrink it down. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize. Uh, such that just our stability in our faith uh, will cause believers, unbelievers, I should say, who slander us because we are believers, 
uh, to see the reality of Christ in our lives and ultimately glorify God by coming to faith in Him. Uh, and what that looks like is this. And a lot of times Christians want to put Jesus in one of the slices of the pie or have a special slice just for Him. And I was told growing up, if you give God one-tenth of your money and one-seventh of your time, He'll bless you. So I guess you give, give Jesus one-seventh of the slice of your pie graph of your life. But normative Christianity is lived out with Christ at the center. However imperfectly, we all leak some oil. So our passage this morning looks like this. We're going to talk about prophets, angels, and us. And we are all, if we're believers in Christ, spiritual VIPs in Christ. Let's look at 10, 11, and the first part of 12 again. Uh, As to this salvation he's been talking about, The prophets, the Old Testament prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you on the New Testament side of the cross after the Messiah would come and pay for our sins. They made careful searches and inquiries inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit within them, was indicating as He, the Holy Spirit, predicted through them and their writings and their ministries the suffering of the Christ, the Savior, and then the glories to follow. It's always the cross before the crown. It was revealed to them that they were not simply serving themselves, but ultimately us, those on the New Testament side of the cross, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Stop there, go back to verse 10. As to this salvation, okay, Ron, what salvation is he talking about? Go back to verse 3. Blessed or praised be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his mercy and our pitiful state without him has caused us to be born again. That's regeneration, the impartation of eternal life to the believing sinner, to a living hope. And that hope, which is faith directed forward to looking forward to something that's been promised, is connected with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I mean, Christianity is not just a self-help program or behavior modification uh, operation. It's transcendent truth about a resurrected Savior. And uh, people talk about the modernity theory as techno- technology gets more and more effective and, and omnipresent. Fewer people are going to be religious. Well, in fact, that might be true in parts of Europe and on the east and west coast of the United States. It's not true anywhere else. Religion is bigger and better than ever and it, it's uh, not Christianity is not centered in the United States, if it ever was. It's centered in South America. I'm talking about evangelical Christianity. South America and Africa is where most of the Christian growth is happening. And those people are not buying what Joel Olstein sells because it doesn't work there. They have to have a a uh, mentality like the uh, audience that First Peter did because they're definitely living their faith under fire. Uh, but talking about that kind of salvation, the salvation that involves uh, a past, a present, and a future aspect. We talked about this earlier, but uh, theologians like to talk about past tense salvation, future tense, uh, past tense, present tense, and future tense salvation. If you, uh, you know, if I could say uh, this speaker here is when I was born. I was born at a very young age, real close to my mom at the time in 1953. Okay, now kids, Jack, that was a long time ago, 1953, it was right after the earth's crust hardened, okay, so I was born physically, and then at age 9, 1962, back row of uh, First Baptist Church, Opelika, Florida, I heard this evangelist saying, God doesn't like sin, and he's holy, he's got to judge our sin, he's going to punish our sin, and he talked about that for like 45 minutes, and man, I was totally convicted as a nine-year-old kid. And I thought the guy's message was, don't sin, because if you sin, you're done. And I thought, I'm, I'm done. You know? And he preached on that for 45 minutes. At least that's my perception of it. And he didn't get to the good news until he really developed the bad news. And the good news is because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. Okay, That's the good news. So I was born again uh, in 1962, uh, Baptist Revival in Opelika, Florida, outside of Miami. So that's, that's when I was born again. Now... Let's stroll through the, the centuries here. Yeah, now I'm uh, almost 64 years old. And so, uh, you know, so that was what, uh, 53 years ago I was born again. And at some point, and I'm going to live to be at least uh, 
120, because when I turned 60, my wife said I looked half dead. So, you know, so with that kind of timeline in mind, as I'm living my life here, I had been saved by the by Christ from the penalty of sin. I'm being saved from the power of sin in my life as I grow spiritually, and I will be saved from the very presence of sin. And so when he says, as to that salvation, he's been talking mainly about the past and the future aspects of it, but it certainly applies to the present too. The theologians call past tense salvation uh, by terms like justification. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Having been justified, Anthony, as a believer, you have been justified. Uh, sanctification refers, experiential sanctification is that walk with Christ where we get closer to him in our mind, will, and emotions. And the glorification is when we're actually in his presence and we're saved from the very presence of sin. So this book's all about suffering and salvation. So verse 10 says, hey, this isn't just pie in the sky by and by. This is Christ in the sky, and he's coming back. And as of this salvation, the prophets in the Old Testament who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, the original readers who were living on the New Testament side of the cross as we are, this is pretty pretty interesting when you think about it, made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know in their own writings what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted what? Sufferings of Christ, Blanche, and what else? And the glories to follow. You can't have one without the other. You can't live in the now without plugging into the not yet as a Christian, or it will not work. Now, there, we used to be warned that don't, don't be too heavenly minded, you'll be no earthly good. But I don't find a lot of people who think too much about heaven or are too heavenly centered, including clergy, including me. You know, I don't see that as a major problem in pragmatic uh, postmodern America, I'm sure you can find somebody out there, but you can't detach the not yet from the now and live a Christian life properly. Now here's the gospel. Here's where uh, we become members of the team in time. God has his plan from all eternity, but the essence of the gospel is what 1 Corinthians 15 says, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, and he was seen by multiple people over a period of 40 days. So this really happened. Jesus really did die on the cross. He really was resurrected, but he died as your substitute to pay for your sins in uh, your place, and our sins were imputed to him and judged, and saving faith embraces that. Now, what happens three days after the death of Christ? The resurrection, and the resurrection is absolutely essential because a dead Savior is not going to get you from Oklahoma to heaven, right? But the resurrected one is able and is the only one who can. So the risen Christ, having been crucified for sins, making atonement for our sin, is the issue. And he's also the issue of eternal life who all believe in him. John 6, 4 says the one who sees the Son and believes in him has eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. You can put your name in the blank if you're a believer. So he's he's emphasizing the fact that our salvation is all about the work of Christ, and Christ, who has saved us, doesn't forget about us when we're suffering on earth. He's very much aware and relevant to our suffering. He's talking about the fact that we're special VIPs because we're living after the prophesied first coming of Christ. And he says that the Old Testament prophets used to try to they scratch their head and they tried to figure out how all this correlated because they knew they were prophesying and God had revealed the Messiah would suffer and he also would reign and how does that work and what does that look like? And some of them, some of the Jews after the prophets wrote thought there were going to be two different messiahs. Uh, Messiah ben Joseph, the suffering son of Jacob, he'd be the suffering one. And Messiah ben David, like the greatest king of Israel, he'd be the ruling one. And of course the reality is there's one savior with how many advents? And he comes the first time as a lamb. He'll come the second time as a lion. And, you know, Abraham, who receives the, the first detailed prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, lived about 2000 BC. And we're living just a little after 2000 AD. So don't think God's forgotten about the promises about the second advent. It took 2000 years. It's right on schedule, of course, but there's a 2000 year gap between the details of the prophecies given to Abraham before they're fulfilled. So we're kind of right on schedule. And I think God likes symmetry too. So don't be surprised if we're not pretty close to the end times kicking in. This is a synthetic overview of the Bible. That's my content. But Jonathan McCoy, 
the world's greatest graphic designer, made it really look sharp. Uh, and when Peter's writing, he's writing right here, and we're living out here somewhere, but he's talking about the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament books were written before Jesus came the first time. The New Testament books were written right after Jesus came the first time, right? The Old Testament predicts both the first and second coming of Christ. The New Testament explains the first coming of Christ and prophesies the second coming. So when he says uh, the prophets who prophesied of the atoning sacrifice of Christ in places like Isaiah 53 in exquisite detail, uh, we're trying to figure out the relationship between the suffering of the Messiah and the, the reigning of the Messiah. And you look at the prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about the first coming of the Messiah. These are all Old Testament prophecies. They get really specific, and there's really one, only one person that fulfills them. But then I think what Peter's thinking about now is this kind of dynamic. He's thinking the Old Testament prophets writing before the first coming of Christ were receiving and sharing information about a suffering Messiah Savior, a sovereign Messiah Savior, and they wondered exactly how that was going to work out, what the connection was, what the relationship was. And of course, we have the advantage living not in the Old Testament side of the cross, but we're on the New Testament side of the cross, right, Ryan? We can look back at the literally fulfilled prophecies about the first coming and anticipate a literal fulfillment in God's timing of the prophecies about the second coming. The lamb comes first, the lion will come second. Uh, you know, God makes this foundational set of promises to Abraham and his seed, gives him a land and a promise to be a blessing to the whole world. In your seed, the whole world be blessed to the Messiah. Then on top of that, as they come out of Egyptian bondage, they need a constitution on which to live that out as the theocratic nation. That's kind of what the Old Testament looks like theologically, but we've got arrows. The Old Testament's anticipation. It's full of anticipation. We've been built for something better than this. Uh, we've got this sin problem. We've got this system where we're constantly sacrificing animals to kind of be a, a sign of what's ultimately going to happen. And what were the arrows of the Old Testament pointing to? Who were they pointing to? They're pointing to the first coming of Christ, right? And then here we are. We're so blessed. We're so used to it. An illustration I would use is uh, like World War II. You know, I was born in 53, so the war was over in, in 45, so... You know, I was eight years old. When, I guess I was uh, I was born eight years after, but I mean, just as a little kid, you know, uh, living with a World War II veteran, and, and we talked. To, you know, we just a lot of stuff was uh, taught to us about World War II, and I was always very interested in that. But it, I realized that you know what, World War II for me wasn't like what it was for my dad. I mean, my dad was living on a tobacco farm in the hills of West Virginia when the Japanese sneak attacked Pearl Harbor. And he enlisted in the Navy. And, you know, they didn't know necessarily, we were, we, the American didn't know we weren't going to be invaded. As it turns out, we thought we were going to be invaded by the Japanese on the Pacific coast. We didn't know we were going to win the war. <laughs> you know, uh, for me, World War II is fascinating, but I was born eight years after it was over. So I have always thought about it from a different perspective. I know Dale's dad uh, was a pilot, a decorated pilot, heroic. He was born, buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Uh, Dale's father. Uh, and yet, you know, for he and I, we look at that in a different way because we're living after the war was over, after the good guys won that one, after we won the war. And in a sense, that's kind of the way we are as New Testament Christians. We can't really appreciate the angst of the Old Testament believers trying to figure out what all this meant because the key is the first coming of Christ and we're living under the New Covenant. We're not under the Old Testament law. Christ is the end of the law, which was spirituality on training wheels. We have spirituality without the training wheels anymore. So as of this salvation, the Old Testament, you don't realize how blessed you are. Think about it, man. You're on this New Testament side of the equation, and it's such a blessing to kind of have that kind of perspective. Uh, the Old Testament prophets themselves uh, wondered about how all these details would fall out, how they correlated, and they would search their own writings. Are you kidding me? Old Testament prophets sought other people's writings or even their own. Look at uh, Daniel chapter 9. Look at Daniel chapter 9. I know some of you are very familiar with this, but it always blows my mind that toward the end of uh, 
the Babylonian slash Medo-Persian captivity. If I can find Daniel here, Daniel 9. Daniel, who was taken captive, as you know, in 605 B.C., realized that Jeremiah the prophet had received information from God that this captivity would last 70 years. And Daniel looks at his calendar and says, we're almost done. The clock is almost done. We've almost done our 70 years. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, who worked for him as a government bureaucrat, observed in the books, he's talking about the books of the prophets, the number of the years which were revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem. Namely, I was reading in Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12 that this captivity would only last 70 years, and we're now 68 years into it. So we better start packing, is what he's saying. So go back to First Peter. Yeah, I mean, these people weren't waiting for the Council of Jamnia to decide these Old Testament passages were Scripture. They recognized them as Scripture when the ink was still wet, as it were. But you don't appreciate how wonderful it is for us to be able to look back at the first advent, even as we anticipate the second advent, regardless of how we're suffering. And we all suffer in a multitude of ways. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit who inspired their writing ministries, the prophets within them, was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now, how would we correlate that? We would say one Messiah, two advents. First coming, cross. Second coming, the crown. Right? Now watch this. Talking about the cross of Christ, by the way. Uh, it's interesting that uh, we look at that at the very center of our faith, and yet uh, a metaphor the Lord uses for discipleship refers to the cross also. He says in Matthew 16, to the believing apostles... This is not evangelism here. Uh, to Peter, James, and John, even after Peter has just confessed the faith, you know, uh, if anyone wishes to come after me, not come to me for salvation, but come after me as a believer who's a disciple of the one who saved him, he or she must deny himself, that's the negative side of the coin, take up his or her cross, and the Luke passage includes daily, you're not saved by taking up your cross daily for Jesus. You're not saved by taking up a cross for Jesus. You're saved by faith in the cross of Jesus. Jesus does the work. He's the Savior. We're not even the helpers. It's all of him uh, through his grace. He's not talking about how you get saved here. He's talking about how a saved person is supposed to live a life of radical lordship, discipleship. And sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't. And every time you sin, you're not doing it. And we all sin in many ways, as James tells us and First John tells us. But believer, you really want to get with the program here? Deny yourself your selfish motivations and priorities. And on the positive side, take up his or her cross and keep on following me. Now, what does it mean to take up your cross? You know, there is such a thing as self-mortification of our sin nature and stuff like that. I understand that. But that's not what the Lord's talking about. The Lord's not talking about self-mortification here. He's talking about taking up the cross. Okay. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they perfected it. Okay. And by Roman rule throughout the Roman Empire, if you were under their thumb and you rebelled and they found you after due process, which wasn't necessarily pretty or fair, that you had been a traitor to Roman rule, they would condemn you to crucifixion. They didn't crucify thieves or anything but but people who were rebellious to Roman rule, uh, they would uh, find you guilty, condemn you legally, and then between that tribunal and your crucifixion, what would they make you do? They would make you carry your cross to the place of your crucifixion. And uh, the point was, when you were carrying your cross, here's a rebel, here's somebody who's anti-Roman authority, who's rebelled against Roman authority. That person who's going to be executed for being uh, a felon in that sense was forced to publicly submit to the authority he had formerly rebelled against. You take up your cross when you publicly submit 
to the lordship of Jesus Christ, an authority you had formerly rebelled against. At high school, at middle school, at our beloved Cameron University, at Halliburton, at football games, at baseball games, in operating suites, at hospitals, uh, on the back of a dump truck, if you're a dump truck guy, at, when you're plunging the toilet, if you're a plumber, when you're taking care of a... Mavis is three. The, the, Mavis is awesome, but the problem with Mavis is sometimes... Don't let her parents hear this. Sometimes she acts like a three-year-old. That's the problem with three-year-olds. Now, you're wondering where my, my... My wife and I are separated this weekend. Hey, whatever the problem was, it wasn't our fix here. I mean, is that me? This is a whole different microphone system, right? It's still on? Okay, last week, last week I had that thing, you know. I think that's the Lord saying, don't go there. <laughs> Two weeks in a row. But, uh, yeah, I was making the joke, my wife and I are separated, because we are separated, because uh, Friday night she found out, hey, they needed help in Edmond this weekend. So, you know what she did at 6.30 in the morning yesterday? She started driving to Edmond, you know, because they have, Jonathan has them two at a time, so it's actually more complicated than that this weekend. But actually, there's, uh, she's supposed to come home today with the two youngest ones so we can continue the fun of taking care of the two youngest ones. But uh, they're just barely two, man, but they can walk now. And they are, uh, it's a thrill, man. It is a thrill ride, uh, dealing with them. But, uh, we all look a little old. God, do, God doesn't do a sin nature ectomy on us when we come to faith, but Jesus calls us to follow Him by living His life. And the Synoptic Gospels are basically discipleship manuals to show you what it looks like. And it's not easy, and you can't do it in your own flesh, but denying your own selfish impulses and desires and publicly submitting to his authority, the authority we just naturally in our sin nature rebel against, and doing it regularly, not just on Sundays and Wednesdays, that's what discipleship's about. But it's not talking about you being on a cross or you mortifying your sin nature and nailing to the cross. Uh, those metaphors are helpful, but we're talking about something completely different. You'd be amazed at people who don't understand that. But that's what that is, and that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And it looks like that. Not like that. Many American Christians... Think on Sundays, uh, Wednesdays, I live my Christian life, and the rest of the time is mine, all mine. And if I don't get any major felonies or don't get caught, I'm okay. But that is a spiritual limp at best, or maybe somebody just pretending to be a believer, and that's that's what Christianity is supposed to look like, regardless of your denomination, color, country, or culture. Right? Boom. Okay. Look at uh, that one statement one more time. There's another really neat parallel passage that quite often gets overlooked, which says uh, that, look at uh, verse 12, it was revealed to them, the Old Testament prophets trying to figure out how the Messiah is going to suffer and reign, how he's going to be the Lamb of God and the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It was revealed to them that ultimately they were not serving themselves and their generations in, in this big picture, macro narrative, but you, but New Testament believers, the original readers and Steve Skinner and Michael Averts today as New Testament believers in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Look at uh, look at Romans fifteen. This is neat little reference here toward the end of Romans about how the Old Testament relates to New Testament believers. Romans fifteen, yeah, and we'll look at verses four through thirteen. But, uh, you know, last week we talked about the fact that in his role as the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus would be a victorious warrior. And we said last week that the God who saved you, who died for you on the cross, he also loved you enough to do that. He also likes you. He likes you. He's trying to find stuff to brag about on you, and he will find stuff uh, to brag about. And that sounds so weird. It almost sounds uh, heretical that Jesus would be bragging about us. But look at this reference in Zephaniah. It's analogous. It's not the exactly same thing. But the Lord your God's with you after the second advent. We're talking to the Israel now. He's mighty to save. He'll take great delight in you. Uh, he'll be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Jesus is going to rejoice over uh, K and uh, Susan and Ron Miller, 
because they're believers and they're trophies of God's grace. But look at the Romans passage here. He says it was shown to the Old Testament prophets. They weren't just talking to that generation. They were talking primarily to New Testament believers as far as this connection, this relationship. Now look what we read here. Paul says in Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in earlier times, the Old Testament books, was written for our instruction too. It wasn't just for them, the Israels, for the New Testament church. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement as we face faith under fire, grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. This is why you need to connect with other believers, preferably in local churches, so you can stay strong. So that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ accepted, also accepted us to the glory of God. Uh, for I say that Christ has become servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God, and it goes on. I always thought that was a cool passage that, that, that get, doesn't get access very often. Go back to 1 Peter 1.12. We're going to wind this thing down. Look, look what it says here. He says, hey, you guys have received the fullness of the meaning of the first coming of Christ. Same for us as New Testament believers. Uh, and you heard about it uh, through the preaching of the gospel by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and he's a guy who's a gospel preacher. Now, if I were to ask you, where, Mimi, where are you going to find Peter's teaching in the New Testament? You're going to say First and Second Peter and some of the things he says in the gospel, some of which are impulsive and kind of goofy and some things that are really, really good. But I would say there's some place else you, you can read about what Peter taught in the New Testament. Where else would you go? Yeah, Acts. Look at Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 is the first concerted attempt to take the New Testament gospel to non-Jews. Uh, these weren't the first Gentiles to be impacted, but this is the first concerted attempt. Peter didn't even want to go because as an Old Testament thinker, he wasn't supposed, he was going to be ritually unclean if he ate with Gentiles and God has to convince him to go. But look at what he says to these folks. This is in Caesarea now. Many of us have been there. Acts 10, 39. This is Peter, the same guy who writes First Peter, saying, We are witnesses of all the things Jesus did in the land of the Jews, generally and in Jerusalem specifically, but they put him to death by hanging him on the cross. He was the Lamb of God. But God raised him up on the third day and granted that the resurrected Christ be visible, not to everybody, but to witnesses chosen beforehand by God, primarily the apostles, that is to us. Peter's an apostle who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people, to bring the word to the people, to testify he's the one who's been appointed to be the issue and issuer of eternal life, uh, the judge of the living and the dead. And then look at this, verse 43, Peter says, of, of him, all the prophets, the same prophets he's talking about in our passage of First Peter, bear witness that through his name, who he is and what he did, Jesus Everyone who believes in him receives what? It's what you want. You want forgiveness of sins, don't you? And that comes through Jesus. Now let's go to one more place in Acts. Go to Acts 15. Acts 15 is this big theological meeting the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem had to, to work through the issue that, uh, what are we going to say to, to non-Jews about the Jewish Messiah? Are we going to tell them they need to become Jews first and then they can believe and be saved? Or can they just believe and be saved where they are? As Gentile pagans that do all kinds of horrible things as a normal lifestyle. Well, let's see what Peter said. Look at Acts 15, verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. We have to make Gentiles pre-qualified by becoming Jews before they can believe and be saved in Jesus. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said, Brethren, you know that in the early days of the church, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles in Acts 10, the first concerted sending of an apostle to Gentiles, would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them back in Acts 10, giving them the Holy Spirit when they believed just like he did to us. God made no distinction between us, Jewish background believers, and them, Gentile believers, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, why do you put God to the test by putting the Old Testament law on them, a yoke that we can't even bear ourselves? Verse 11, but we believe we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ through faith just like they are. 
Boom, 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 out of here. Go back to 1 Peter 1, 12. We've been talking about prophets. Now let's look at angels. And he t- makes this little reference to, about angels uh, in regard to the first and second coming of Christ. Dash, after talking about uh, the Old Testament prophets, talked about the suffering and the glory, and they realized they weren't talking directly to themselves, but to New Testament believers in that sense, with that content. And then we get dash, things into which angels long to look. Okay? What does that mean? I think that means that angels who are real spirit, spirit beings are fascinated by and want to understand as specifically as possible all they can about the relationship of church-age believers' human limitations and sufferings now and our future glory and function in Christ's kingdom and beyond. Can you imagine angels? I mean, angels, angels to the extent they think about me are saying, why would God even want to save that loser? And then why would he give him a calling to be a Bible teaching pastor? I mean, why would he use Brad McCoy? I mean, I mean, I always wanted to pitch for the Yankees and they didn't want me. And I don't, I don't think they still want me. They don't, they want me. They don't need me. You know, but God drafted me for his team. I mean, it's bizarre. And, I think angels look at, you know, somebody like James, who's very talented, gifted. I mean, they think, why would God use him? He can't fly like us. He can't materialize and dematerialize like we can. He can't move like at the speed of thought like we can. Why would God want to use him? You know, I thought we were the announcers. I thought we were the messengers. Now he's saying New Testament Christians are supposed to be the messengers. Yeah, it's a wondrous thing. Some of us see it as a burden. We ought to see it as a great privilege. Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 5 says, uh, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We're supposed to be uh, representatives and sharers of that truth with other people. Uh, here's what he's talking about. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting man's sins against them. He didn't just blow up the world and start over. And he's committed to us, put your name in the blank, Stephanie West, David Stribling, the message of reconciliation. I mean, God will even use engineers, David. Cheer up. It's good. We are therefore God's ambassadors. I mean, Steve Skinner laughing at the jokes over there. Is it one of Christ's ambassadors? But you're a lowercase a ambassador, just so you'll know. And then he, and, and then Paul says, it's it's almost like God was making his appeal through us. It's like, this is absurd. And that's just the way it works, you know? We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And then one, a verse I quote a lot, I love it. Uh, God made Christ who made, who knew no sin, who had no sin, to be a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Okay, we've been looking at prophets vis-a-vis the first and second coming. Angels, as they watch us, try to serve the one who saved us. And now let's talk about us. It's not specifically mentioned here, but I think it's implied throughout. And I am going to close with this. Hold your applause. Uh, Old Testament prophets, angels, and privileged people like Sherry Harrington or uh, Blanche Britton. You know, far from being this little theological aside that preachers like to talk about for a whole message but doesn't really mean anything, this passage, these three verses are designed to turbocharge our perspective on life now so we have a greater level of appreciation and, and joy in serving even as we are forced often to suffer um, as we walk in discipleship with our, Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and you might say, well, yeah, that's uh, okay, maybe that's what Peter meant by that, but why didn't Jesus ever talk about that? Well, you know what? Uh, Talking about prophets, angels, and us. This is the last time I'm going to do this. Let's get rid of that extra stuff because we're now we're talking about us, spiritual VIPs. But now it's at the bottom. What do we got to do? Move it up. But then you got to do one more thing. And then Steve insisted I do this. Okay. So yeah, that's what we're talking about, us. This is what the Lord Jesus says to his disciples at one point during the ministry, uh, after a teaching session, which is misconstrued by the crowd. Turning to his disciples privately, he says, blessed are your eyes, is what he's saying. You, you don't realize how cool it is to be watching what's happening here because the prophets for thousands of years wanted to figure all this out. Blessed are the eyes 
which see the things you've just seen. For I say to you that many prophets, same thing Peter says here, and kings, David, Solomon, wish to see the things which you see, the ministry of the Messiah, first coming, and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear, it did not hear them. Uh, as believers in the finished work of Christ, as New Testament believers, we should never uh, fail to appreciate the this position we're in in the op- ongoing program of God. It's just an amazing period of time. And the Lord's Supper, what does he say about the Lord's Supper? You, you do this in remembrance of what he did, you know, until he comes back. We're in this amazing bubble of time. And I think after a couple of million, billion eons in heaven, me and Anthony and Ben and, and Lloyd will bump in each other and say, wasn't that amazing? Wasn't that amazing to be in spiritual warfare earth uh, right after the postmodernism hit, but living between the first and coming of Christ and being able to live the faith in that kind of environment? Wow, incredible. Got to love it. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to center on Christ, to appreciate the position we're in, uh, and he's writing this to people who are suffering. I mean, I've lost every physical thing they've got. And he's saying, cheer up, put it in perspective, keep walking with the Lord, and it's going to work out. And we got so much to appreciate now and so much more to look forward to. Uh, Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who's not from the depth of their heart embraced Jesus Christ as their Savior, that you'd open their heart to see they're sinners, they've broken their own standards, much less yours at their worst. They can't fix it by being a better person or coming to church, but you've done something to make them right in your presence. You've sent the Lord Jesus Christ to do the work of redemption to pay our sins in our place on the cross. You've validated that by his resurrection and his promised return. And so open eyes and hearts to embrace him and him alone for salvation. For the rest of us, make us more determined to take up our cross daily, to publicly identify and submit uh, to the one we normally rebel against because we're selfish, lazy, and stupid too often. And certainly that's true for me. And help us to realize that's the challenge and we're going out in the mission field in a few minutes as we leave this building. I thank you for each one who's here. I know a lot of people, including Debbie, are traveling this week. Uh, and I pray for travel safety for those we know and love. And for those who are under special, uh, just in a specially hot, difficult, dark crucible of suffering. I pray you'd encourage them in some special ways. Make your presence very, very special and real and palpable to them, we pray, uh, as they reflect on just where they fit in your big plan. And it's such a wonderful privilege, Father, that you have made us your draft choices. You've allowed us to serve on your team, to get between the lines and actually score some points for your kingdom. And rather than seeing that as a burden or just a, a responsibility, let us see it as a great and high privilege. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.